Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we are going to talk about the rising number of attacks against Asian Americans across the country. Over the past several weeks, uh, racist attacks against uh, people of Asian descent have taken place in San Francisco and other large cities across the country with local activists calling for justice. And also, the violent attacks have sparked tense conversations online about how some people feel Asian Americans are given preferential treatment over black victims of racist violence. It's also raising questions about solidarity, particularly between Asian Americans and black activists. We're also going to talk about this whole complicated conversation about movement work and what liberation looks like for all of us. Here to help us unpack all this are Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Global Network and the founder of the Black Futures Lab. And we have Shasan Liu, Executive Director at the Chinese Progressive Association. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, first, I want to do a mental health check with all of us because there's a whole lot of stuff going on in COVID and in Texas, you know, and it's just white supremacy all over the place. But, you know, we're human beings and I'm going to check with both of y'all. So, Alicia... How are you taking care of yourself in all of this? There's a few things that I'm doing. I'm so glad you asked that. Nobody ever asks, like, how are you really doing? (laughs) So thank you for doing that. Yeah, how are you really doing? Be truthful, yeah. So how I'm really doing is uh, it's dry February for me. So, you know, Black History Month tends to drive me crazy just for, you know, all the reasons. So I decided I'm going to do a dry month. And then also it's the shortest month of the year, so I know I can accomplish it. So instead of my usual tequila, um, what I'm doing is riding my bike and um, chilling out in my backyard, which has now turned into a backyard living room because of COVID and um, building with my folks. I feel like, you know, if I get to turn off the television, not watch the news, and connect with my people, I remember that we're actually doing okay. And maybe even a little bit better than okay. So that's how I'm doing. And that's what I'm doing to be how I'm doing. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And um, Shasan, how about yourself? Hey, that's a, yeah, I really appreciate that as a kickoff question um, because I think we're living in times that um, wellness is uh, not to be taken for granted and a lot of our normal coping mechanisms, um, you know, have been pretty uh, disrupted um, from the pandemic and everything that's happening. Um, so for me, I'm kind of feeling a little crazy. It's been a rough few weeks um, with all the um, the uh, incidents that have happened and the uh, work that we're doing in our community to try to find solutions and to um, really juggle the tensions between um, all the different uh, viewpoints and um, the work that we can do internally in our community and across communities to find real solutions to violence. So I think that's been kind of heavy these last few weeks. Um, but what keeps me well, um, even though I haven't gotten exercise, which I really need to do, um, is this little one, my baby, uh, she's 11 months old and she's really fun and cute and just in the present moment all the time. So I enjoy time with her and um, her five-year-old um, sibling, they, uh, their interactions <laughs> are really entertaining. So keeps me smiling and laughing. You got me doing it now. So cute. Oh, my <laughs> uh-huh. yes, for everybody that's listening, we are making these little weird kind of silly things that we do with kids and the kid is engaging us and I'm not even looking at my script anymore because I'm trying to get the little, what, what's, 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 what's the baby's name? This is Ely Kai. Eli Kai, hi. Eli Kai, hey Eli Kai. Yeah, now she's like really laughing. <laughs> oh, geez. oh my gosh, smile. There you go. Yeah, see, I feel like this is self care right now, just being human beings, right? Because we all are dealing with race, and you know, when you're dealing with race, you gotta deal with the white man, and like you know, in white supremacy, it's like it's just rough. And I think that the thing that I do to kind of separate myself from the not necessarily separate myself, but just kind of detox and to make sure that my body is well as I run. I do a lot of yoga 
And I post a lot of my photos on my Twitter as well as my Instagram of doing things, just showing that, hey, I can take care of myself. And as you know, we're all creatives at at different aspects of our lives. And we often forget that we have to take care of our bodies as often as, as we take care of our minds. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. That's a that's a really key thing. Easier said than done sometimes, right? <laughs> Shasan is a runner. Um, so when you say you haven't been exercising lately, I'm like, oh, I want you to go out for a run. And I just got my treadmill yesterday nice. that I've been waiting for for about three months. And so I'm ready to get back in because my knees can't handle that outside, but that conveyor belt does me well. <laughs> Yeah, my my hope is someday to get back to do a sprint triathlon sometime in the next year and a half, maybe, <laughs> if I ever can get time to exercise. Yeah, my, I run as well, and it really depends on the shoes that you have. And it's good to go to a running store where they can actually check out the type of shoe that's appropriate for your foot. That's the thing. And then also, you're right about the outside and also just listening to your body. Some people just, you know we're going to tough it out and you, you know, you have a whole bunch of knees that you can't walk on when you're 50. Right. So no, nah, that's, that's definitely not it, you know, but I want to have a conversation with y'all about this rising number of attacks against people of Asian descent, you know, over the past is it start, you know, like there's been in the news in the past few weeks, but I've looked at a number of studies that showing that they've been rising over the past year or so. Right. And so they're happening in the Bay area and also in New York city where I live. In fact, I read one, there's an article that basically was saying that uh, Asian American parents are, are nervous about sending their kids to school, right? Because of these rising attacks. Shasan, I'm curious, as an organizer, how are you work, you know, working with the community to respond to all of this? Yeah, thanks um, for the question. And by the way, remind us of where you are. Oh yeah, so I'm based, you know, I'm, I'm actually currently physically in Oakland, but I'm based in my organization is based in San Francisco and we work with the Chinese immigrant working class community in the greater Bay Area and really have seen that, you know, like other communities of color in the Asian immigrant community, folks have been very destabilized and insecure long before the pandemic because of decades of under-resourcing in our communities. So we've been working on issues like, you know, housing and workers' rights and protecting people's um, uh, ability to access um, healthcare. Um, and uh, that that's already been, it's been tough for folks even pre-pandemic, but the pandemic really just exacerbated the racial inequities and the economic stress that our communities face. Um, and then you add on that uh, Trump's racist scapegoating of our communities for the very um, suffering that our entire country was and the globe was going through with the global pandemic. Um, and it's really just a toxic mix uh, when you think about the ways that Asian uh, businesses were first to shut down and many of our lowest wage workers are concentrated in industries that were hardest hit by the pandemic, like restaurants, food service, hospitality. So really, our folks were already feeling under attack and super fearful about their lives and their future. And then on top of that, you add this fear of you, you or your grandparent being physically harmed when you just walk out the door. And so there's just there's a lot of pain in the community right now, a lot of pain, trauma, and a sense of deep neglect and exclusion, right, from the powers that be in this country. A recent study that was collecting incidents of anti-Asian hate called Stop API Hate documented over 2,800 incidents, self-reported incidents of um, anti-Asian hate between March and December of 2020. Um, and that's just people who reported to this you know, website, basically. That's why I think the recent incidents that were very publicized led to a bit of a boiling point for our community. And seeing these incidents on the news and repeated on social media, um, you know, I think that um, is, is what led to folks to really feel like they needed to come together and speak out. Um, and Chinese Progressive Association um, and our allies were part of a larger movement of grassroots organizations and concerned individuals across the country who want to condemn the violence and really um, call it out and name it, um, and also call for long-term community-based solutions to prevent violence in all communities, um, starting with um, you know, basic things like trauma-informed, culturally relevant services for survivors and victims, which have been under-resourced for, I think, all communities of color, and we have certainly seen that in the Asian community, um, as well as 
investments in the community infrastructure that's needed to prevent further um, acts of violence. And really, you know, we need our leadership to invest in communities of color so that folks have the resources they need to live lives with dignity and not, um, you know, feel this level of insecurity. Alicia, I feel like our country and our government is not set up to really address these issues adequately because it's a it's a carceral system, right? First of all, and it's a system that simplis- that that simplistically deals with these types of problems because one, we don't, you know, I let me be careful not by saying we, the power brokers of our government institutions don't understand racism do not acknowledge white supremacy and so if you don't really recognize those things you really can't get to the nitty-gritty of it and going i'm going back to your february 11 threads where you were saying hey my heart breaks out for all the stories i've heard about the violence perpetuated against asian folks in the bay and you went on to talk about the fact that it's created a culture by which disdain and distrust of asian communities as an all-time high and then you talk about you know, from laying the pandemic at their feet, I think that's a good point, to stoking fears about economic takeover. It's a recipe for disaster. That's exactly why Trump stoked these fears. And you even tweeted at the uh, mayor of Oakland talking about the fact, hey, our communities deserve better. And where's the money to help our communities be resilient in the face of a crisis? You know, can you dare to be more imaginative than Donald Trump and combat violence with resources rather than retribution and more racism. I'm proud of myself for saying that. <laughs> we proud of you too, Alicia. <laughs> you know? I'm like, damn, that was a good story. Yes. <laughs> Let me start with your first part, which is um, we do have an over-reliance on the carceral system and punishment and retribution. And a lot of that has to do with not just people being unimaginative, but that it's um, it's a business and uh, carceral uh, activities are profitable. And when we can kind of funnel more and more people into cages or into handcuffs, um, there are people who benefit from that. And I think that's a piece that often gets lost in the conversation about our carceral system. But in particular, I think in this instance and in this particular case where uh, there is a rise in anti-Asian violence, um, it is being stoked by kind of a culture that is not new to Donald Trump, but I think he certainly is pouring gasoline on it, uh, where, you know, essentially uh, (laughs) it's, it's creating the conditions by which people are um, reaching for what they know. Okay, and so in essence, when we when we see these videos, which are heartbreaking, right? I mean, it's the middle of the daytime in Oakland's Chinatown, and there's what looks like a, a black person running up on this Asian elder for no reason. There's no interaction between them whatsoever. It's just, you know, this young person, and actually they are a young person. I think they were 19 or 20, running up on this Asian elder, and. Um, you know, people reach for what they know. When we see those videos, when I see those videos, right? We say something needs to be done. And the something that we know is punishment. But at the end of the day, we don't actually know what happened in that dynamic. And we don't have any background or history or story about who either of them are. And I think that this is really kind of a a critical piece of not only what gets in the way of solidarity between Black and Asian communities, but it's also a critical piece of what can build solidarity between Black and Asian communities. Um, For me personally, I felt like that thread was important because we were having all of these conversations about, you know, $50,000 reward for for whoever did this attack. And the logical conclusion to offering that reward is that you're turning them into the police. And then we never talk about what happens from that point forward. But I thought that it was important for us to call out in particular our city leadership. We're doing too much of this thing where we're asking people to address um, harm that is actually systemic in an interpersonal way. And frankly, (laughs) right, it is up to the mayor of our city who is watching while million dollar condos are being built downtown and all around Chinatown 
while Chinatown itself is suffering, and while Black communities that surround the downtown are suffering. It is our mayor, right, who helped to drain the resources for victim services in, in Oakland, for there to be uh, community patrols in Chinatown, right? It was our mayor who literally unilaterally took money out of the budget for those services. And yet, while we're calling for retribution and we're calling for punishment, we rarely call for accountability to the people who hold the purse strings. And I thought that that was an important point to raise. The last thing I'll just offer here is that, you know, for me, I think we need to have a nuanced conversation about root causes. And whenever I say that, I think about Hillary Clinton. You know, one time when Black Lives Matter kind of ran up on her at a fundraiser, she said, you know, uh, I don't believe you change hearts and minds. I believe you change policy. And then it kicks me back to a time when uh, in the early 1990s, when she was calling Black youth super predators, right? She said, well, you can try to figure out what's going on with them later, but first thing you have to do is bring them to heal. I actually feel like part of what we need to be doing right now is combating that, um, that uh, impetus, right, to punish before we get a clear sense of what's going on. And what's going on is this, there is economic devastation in our communities, and we are hurting, and we are suffering, and we... Um, have not gotten any relief and we've not gotten any redress. And what we know about people who lack power in society is that we look for a place to build it. And oftentimes, right, that's where we come into conflict with each other, okay? Um, that Asian elder probably had just as much power as that young black kid, right? And so there's the tension. And meanwhile, the people who have the power um, go unchecked and they go unscathed. That's really the issue that we're dealing with here. And it does matter to get to the root causes. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. When I hear you speak, I think about neoliberalism, right? And when I talk to people running for, candidates running for office or whether it be Senate, governor, president, I start asking about neoliberalism because I want to know how people think about how do you solve a problem? And most politicians, I could tell you, I would say 90% of them have absolutely no imagination at all. From my years of talking to them, like they have no real original thoughts. The vast majority of them. Um, one of the few that I've interviewed recently that has a ideological vision of how to deconstruct all the things we're talking about is Jamal Bowman. He's a former, you know, uh, He's a school principal, right? He could talk to you about neoliberalism and what that means. All of the people who are considered to be part of the squad, you know, Corey Bush, all these folks can do that. Um, but the problem is that in order to address the issues that you're talking about, that means that you have to divest from, from capitalism. And capitalism is connected to our, our carceral state. And so you're taking money out of people's pockets and people are, are willing to kill for that, right? You know, and getting people to have those type of conversations is very difficult because most of us are just trying to live our lives. And when you think about these hard issues, you know, as, as far as getting people together, you're, you're actually challenging people to fight against their initial emotions of fighting and revenge because that's what they know to do. So... Shasan, uh, I'm really curious about what type of conversation do you have about? Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, um, the root cause issues and they're huge and complex. And um, I can tell you that uh, whether you're the family member of an elder who was, you know, killed in a violent attack or just a community member watching the video um, online, most of those, most of our folks are not that interested in having a conversation about capitalism and white supremacy at that moment, right? Right. They're right. <laughs> in um, experiencing the trauma, the pain, and um, they want they want to be they they want to be held, and that's really what our events this last weekend was about: was holding space to recognize that on top of the racism, the exclusions, the under resourcing, the economic challenges that our communities face that are often invisibilized because of the model minority myth because of white supremacy pitting Asians against black and other people of color, right? That the experiences, the real struggles of Asian Americans are often invisibilized and unseen by the mainstream. And therefore, um, you know, we, we have done um, so much work to try to 
counter and uh, lift up and create space for our communities um, on the ground level to be able to have their needs expressed. Um, oftentimes, you know, as organizers, so really the, the, the answer to how do we deal with effective politicians are unimaginative. Like really the answer is how do we organize our people? How do we bring our people into community uh, despite the isolation that the system um, and, and the pitting against each other that the system wants us to do? How do we bring, you know, tenants who are just struggling to get by, who are living in SROs where they have to share a bathroom and kitchen with five other families and are uh, driving for DoorDash at night and working, you know, uh, in a factory by day. I mean, how do we get uh, folks who are, like you said, just trying to survive, that's most of us, right? To actually um, build new kind of relationship to each other, to really see how our, our future and our ability to live better depends on our coming together as, a community in whether it's in Chinatown, whether it's in San Francisco and the Asian community, but also for us, it's really about building that sense of collective so we can build collective across race and across, you know, um, differences, because we know that nothing is going to be won by the Chinese immigrant community for our safety, our well-being, our basic dignity of life and in the workplace if we just go about it as Chinese people. That's not going to happen. We know that's not going to happen under the system. And the system wants us to think that we're going to get what we want by fighting against another community of color. And that's just not true. And we know that, um, you know, the to really solve the issue, like you said, we have to understand the root cause. And then we have to talk to the people who are most impacted. And, you know, the solutions have to come from the folks closest to the issue. But that doesn't mean just a blank check to be like, so what do you want? More police? Okay, let's do it, right? Like those are the conversations that we're, that we're, we're having to hold space for to say, let's attend to the wounds. Let's make sure that our victims and survivors get some services, get you know uh, access to counseling, get told what the heck's happening with their case if their case does go through a legal process, right? That we are getting um, that that we are actually creating space for folks to talk about what it feels like to be constantly, um, um, you know, feel like they're constantly being discriminated against as Asians, you know, in San Francisco, especially post-pandemic. Um, how do we create those spaces, and then how do we actually uh, from there start to talk about what does real healing and accountability look like? And I really just want to echo Sister Alicia's point on, you know, a lot of folks are reacting and they want prosecution. They want, they're calling for something to be done because it's what they know. Um, and yet we know that just having someone get uh, put into the carceral state does not necessarily bring any kind of real healing or accountability to the survivors and the families and the communities who are, who are left behind. Um, and, and we know it causes further damage to the communities, um, you know, who are all part of the, of the picture. So we really need to see how as, you know, Asian folks, as Black folks, as Latinx folks, as different communities of color who are all impacted differently by white supremacy and capitalism, but who are all ultimately, you know, seeking the same thing. You know, we want to stop feeling afraid. We want to feel like we have dignity and respect in our lives and in our workplaces. And we are not gonna get that unless we work together to call for a real radical uh, reimagination of the society, our society's priorities, right? Yeah, cause you know the thing about it is that, so for example, in New York City, we have a mayoral race and I'm interviewing the, the elected officials line by line. And the first person I spoke to was Diana Morales. And I asked her about the rising number of uh, violent attacks that's been taking place in Brooklyn. And so I don't know if either of you are familiar with Brooklyn, but you know, I live in Bed-Stuy. And so you can live in one part of Bed-Stuy and it's real, real silent. But if you walk a few streets up, it's live. You know what I'm saying? And so, because it's, it's just such a big borough, there's so many people that live in Brooklyn. Right. And so Diana was talking about the same things that you're discussing, talking about the economy. When I asked her about defunding the police, she says I support it, but what she says that when she introduces it to folks, she says, she uses the language, we're unburdening them. Because when they think about defund the police, she says that a lot of people you talk to, they feel like you're taking the one safety tool that they have away from them. And they don't know how to process the intellectualized longer versions of what we are that we all know to be defund the police and so just even talking to people about uh safety what does what does it what does it mean to make you feel safe right you know so alicia i'm curious about 
this conversation about safety because, I, you know, as you go online, you see so many people spread stereotypes about, you know, well, you know, about Asian folk, you know, about Asian folks and things. And it's really disheartening. And I feel like your, you know, in, in, in your threads and in your, pre, you know, your tweets after that, you know, you kind of um, speak to it. But I feel like you're particularly qualified to talk about how do you get beyond these stereotypes with each other and really talk about how we all can be safe and trusting the process, right? Trusting the process of what a new definition of safety means because that new process is going to come with a few complications, right? Because you're taking people from what they know and people are scared of that. Even though what they know is not necessarily helping them, they're still afraid. So getting people over that fear, what what's, what does that look like? Well, I think it looks a few ways and you're absolutely right that safety is important to break down. And I think that one of the reasons that these stereotypes are able to proliferate is because of the ways in which our communities are segregated, right, on purpose, and then we get fed stuff about each other. And the way that we interact with each other, right, is largely through somebody else's medium, or it's in our communities, but under strife and duress, right? We're coming from communities that don't have the things they need to live well. And um, our strategies, right, to survive that and be resilient in the face of it come into contact conflict all the time because frankly, right, we weren't meant to be resilient in the face of these kinds of crises. So I think there's a few things that are relative here when we start talking about policing and safety and its effectiveness. I mean, you're right. Most of us are taught from a very young age, if you're in trouble, you call the police. If you think you're gonna get hurt, you call the police. But what I know from living in communities where police don't come is that for those of us who have been isolated from police protection, you actually have to figure it out. And the way that people figure it out, right, is by coming together and having each other's backs. I could tell you a thousand stories of things wild things that I've seen in my neighborhood. And you could call the police if you want to, and they might come maybe 24, maybe 48, maybe 72 hours later. But by that time, right, it's all, it's over, right? So people have to figure it out. Um, I have been uh, in situations where I've had to be a domestic violence counselor. I've been in situations where I've had to break up fights, right? I mean, we figure out ways to survive without protection because protection is not afforded to us. So there's that. But on the other side of it, what are the police going to do? This The reason people don't call police in certain neighborhoods is one, because they don't come, but two, because they're not fixing anything. And actually, they're not equipped to fix things. They are only equipped, right, to punish you. So all they can do is put you in a cage or put you in handcuffs. They can't resolve a conflict for you. Um, they can't counsel you. They're not, they're literally not trained to do that. And so when the sister says um, we're unburdening them, she's 100% right. And when you talk to law enforcement officers who are being honest, they will tell you, I'm not equipped to deal with the majority of things that I'm being called for, okay? We have this image, I think, from like the 1950s where you call police and they help get the cat out of the tree. But like, that's not actually... <laughs> right. Like, we think yeah. that police are also like dealing with violent crime all the time. And the fact of the matter is that's just not true. The majority of calls that police get are for things that are fundamentally about relationships and not at all about preventing crime. You get called for seeing somebody have a mental health crisis on the street. They get called for dealing with homeless encampments. They get called for um, you know, intimate partner violence calls, right? But they're not getting tons of calls about people being murdered, right? Or people being raped. Like that is a, a myth and a stereotype. And when you actually look at call logs, right? From emergency lines and things like that, you'd be surprised to find that the overwhelming majority of calls that police get to respond to are things that are nonviolent, right? And they are um, things that are a result of people not having the things that they need. We can't keep sending police to do things like address mental health crises when at the same time, we completely slash the budgets 
for mental health services in our communities. You cannot keep calling police, right, for things like uh, a beef between a baby mama and a baby daddy, when at the end of the day, right, we're not providing services for families to be well. And so I think when we talk about safety, we have to kind of reimagine and not even just reimagine, but be honest about what are the things that keep us safe. It's not police. And I don't say that in a way that's like, you know, um, saying that police don't do anything. I'm, I'm literally saying that we can shrink their footprint because the things they're being asked to do could be better done by professionals. And police are not professionals to deal with most of the things they get asked for. And when we talk about safety, most people feel safe when they have the things they need to live well. I know I feel safe when I have food that I can eat. I feel safe when it's raining and I know there's a roof that I can get under. I feel safe when I know my family is good. Those are the things that bring us safety. And when we're in communities, I think the thing that people who live in actual neighborhoods know, right, that um, your neighbor is gonna respond to something that's happening to you much faster than a police officer will, right? <laughs> what we know is that our neighbors show up for us when we're in relationship. But the challenge is there are so many things that break the bonds between people. We're encouraged to put up gates and you know those things that you can only see out of but not see into. We're encouraged to be afraid of each other. And we are encouraged to not build the relationships that we need even to resolve conflicts. Um, after that elder was pushed and assaulted in Chinatown, you know, hundreds of people showed up the very next day to say, that's not our community. It was black, it was Latinx folks, it was Asian folks from across the diaspora. And those are the stories that we don't tell. Because we keep feeding this notion that um, carceral solutions are the only option. But I will tell you right now, the thing that people need to know about Oakland is that we do show up for each other. And I know that that's true in other cities across the country where this has been happening. I personally feel yeah, like- Yeah, yeah, in New York too. Yep, the lack of imagination actually comes from the fact that people who deal with this stuff every single day aren't the people who are making decisions about how things need to get dealt with. Politics right now in the United States is a political dynasty that only some people have access to. And so Shasan is absolutely right that the radical imagination comes from more people having more power and particularly people who have the experience of being in harm's way and have the experience of knowing what it means to be resilient without protection. But we also have an imagination about what real protection could look like. And we need to be the people who are making the rules, not the people who are so distant from that experience that they not only lack imagination, but they lack the courage to be innovative in the face of crisis. Absolutely. And I think to the journalists, we need to continue to educate ourselves in ways in which we can liberate ourselves from these systems. And I want to tell you, Alicia, that, well, to thank you, and I think that every journalist a black one, even people of, well, every person of color that's a journalist should be thanking the movement and people like you because we have seen a rise in our stature in our newsrooms because of the labor and the sacrifices that you have put forth. And I don't know if any journalists are humble enough to say that, but it's true. I don't think that I would have the opportunities that I have if it wasn't for the work that you all did in sacrificing. And we know it started before Ferguson. You all been organizing and doing that work, but it made newsrooms reckon with themselves in ways that we alone could not do. And I'm fortunate enough to be working. I worked um, in the past few years with really good colleagues at the root. Right. But there are so many people who feel like they didn't have power in the, in the ways in which I'm asking these questions and talking about carceral state and using this language. I got that from movement people. I didn't learn this in journalism school. I didn't learn this in the newsroom. It was movement people who sat down and taught me how to ask the questions. So all of these questions that I'm bringing forth to elected officials, that's all the movement. I didn't have this vocabulary. 
right? I didn't have this politic about gender, about, um, you know, gender binary, all of these things. And, and the thing about, um, you know, black feminism, all, all, I didn't have that at all. And so now when I think, I may, even the way that I'm able, able to conduct this conversation is because of the work that you're doing. And, and also in my field, I study, I work on in Russian Eastern European politics. Even in that field, the way that I view the world and the way that I talk about imperialism, it comes from movement work, you know? So, you know, we all are indebted, you know, to the movement and to you. And I don't, I don't think we say that enough to people. So thank you for everything that you do, because again, if it wasn't for y'all, I wouldn't be, perform as well as I am in my job, you know? You know, I, I appreciate you saying that because I think for a lot of us, um, we have also been waiting for this moment where we get asked different questions that aren't automatically combative or trying to paint us into little corners. We are um, layered. And so many of us, Terrell, have been in relationship together for a long time. You know, it's interesting, you know, Shasan and I have known each other for 105 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> and we have been doing this hard work of bringing our communities together so that we can learn about each other, so that we can be in relationship, so that we can resist the wedges that powerful people are always trying to insert between and amongst our communities. And we've seen real results in that way. This isn't the first time that something like this has happened. And before anybody even knew about Black Lives Matter or Alicia Garza or whatever, Shasan and I were holding conversations, right? I was working in Bayview Hunters Point, organizing predominantly low-income Black folks in a community that wasn't even on the tourist maps in San Francisco. And Shasan was doing organizing work predominantly with low-income working-class Chinese immigrants and an, 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 an Asian elder was killed in the community that I was organizing in. And it was the same dynamic, right? People were wiling, you know, folks were like, they need to go to jail. And then we were like, hey, we're not gonna, we're not doing race wars here, right? Because at the end of the day, right? Neither of us are getting the things that we need. And I wanna tell you, Terrell, that, you know, what is important about the questions that you ask is that we get to get to the heart of what it looks like to actually build relationships of solidarity. What Shasan and I learned from that experience, along with others, right, is that we actually really don't know that much about each other. And all the information that we're getting fed about each other is coming through television. It's coming through journalism that's not as responsible as you, right? And that's the only way that we are in contact because our communities are so divided for the purposes of economic benefit, right? So it's deep to see, you know, um, working class Asian folk being like, damn, I didn't know that about black folks. I just see y'all hanging out, but I didn't realize, right, that you've been pushed out of the economy. I didn't realize, right? I thought I'm being told all of these things. And now because I'm in relationship with you, I actually have a different story. Same thing with black folks, right? Black folks, um, I think, were able to break our stereotypes, not because somebody was like, hey, don't say that, that's mean, but because you could actually be in relationship with folk and learn from them directly what their experiences have been, what they go through every day. So when you talk about the shifts in journalism, when you talk about the ways in which the movement has impacted the way we tell stories, my hope for this moment is that the movement can also keep shifting the stories we tell each other about each other and that we can continue to um, encourage each other to be more imaginative than what's been handed to us. What's been handed to us are solutions that don't work. But what we know, right, is that we got each other's backs and we take care of us. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a long history of um, Asian Black solidarity, um, not just here in the US, but globally, that we, um, you know, is at our backs. I mean, Chinese Progressive Association, we're almost 50 years old. And we were, our organization was founded to organize and, you know, equip everyday people with the tools to have a voice in, the, in, in their lives, right? That society so often takes away from them. 
And our organization was formed, inspired by the Black Panther movement. So it's in our DNA to see our liberation as intertwined and connected to the liberation of all communities of color. Um, and I think that what is often un untold in the media stories, right? The media focuses our attention on high profile, um, you know, incidents that happen of conflict and of, um, uh, you know, misalignment between our communities. When actually on the daily, you know, we are working in our communities to um, provide for each other, to support each other, you know, both inter within the black community, within the Asian community and across communities. Um, you know, we were, uh, uh, providing PPE to our, you know, residents living in uh, substandard housing in Chinatown and across the city. Um, and we uh, delivered a bunch of PPE to our friends at Hospitality House in San Francisco that working with, um, you know, formerly homeless uh, folks in the Tenderloin and really trying to, you know, build not just through an act of, you know, delivering PPE, but really actually we've had a series of community exchanges where our young people uh, met with, um, you know, their staff and their members and really just had conversations about how do we be people of color in these crazy times where white supremacy is just fully unleashed and fully um, you know, unmasked you know, in our faces every day. Um, and we're just trying to survive economically and we're feeling um, really beat down, right? By the weight of racism in our country. And we're struggling with things like, how do I acknowledge my experience as an Asian American person without taking away or undermining or comparing to the experience of a black person in the United States? How do I be um, true to my experience and also be in solidarity? How do I um, you know, fight for my community while also uplifting the struggles of other communities, which I may just be starting to learn about? You know, we're in a period of time where so many people are becoming activated and interested in questions of race, of power, of safety, you know, that that have never gotten involved in maybe this type of issue or political activism before. And so it's a real moment where we're seeing a whole range of reactions in the community right now. For example, there's maybe four or five different groups organizing private patrols in Chinatown to say, let's go out there and just walk around and support and you know look out for people and keep people safe, which is all very well-intentioned and you know a great effort. Um, however, without really um, you know, without fully taking a fuller picture of what the issues are, it can lead to just further racial profiling and, um, you know, vigilante acts um, instead of having a more comprehensive approach and really recognizing that, again, the media focuses certain attention on certain things. The issues happening in San Francisco are not just in Chinatown. There are neighborhoods across the city. Um, the, the, the incident that got the most, um, sparked the most outrage uh, recently was um, the uh, attack on an 84-year-old uh, Thai um, elder who was shoved uh, while walking in his quiet neighborhood uh, far from Chinatown um, and died later of his injuries two days later. Um, and in that case, it was a very young person, 19 years old, right, who was um, uh, alleged to be the perpetrator. And so these are the kinds of things that our community are seeing and hearing about and then finding you know, their reactions to, right? Um, and I just think that the other thing I wanted to talk about was how, how important it is if we don't understand each other's histories and each other's stories, and you know, we're not gonna be able to come together to solve our common issues. Um, the Asian community is extremely diverse. And you know, in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, across the country, it's not just Chinese folks, it's it's not just East Asian folks, there's Pacific Islanders, there's Filipinos, there's, you know, South Asian folks, there is within the Chinese community, folks from Hong Kong, folks from, you know, uh, different regions of China that have their own beef sometimes and their own perspectives. And so how do we really, um, you know, give space for folks to learn about each other's histories, um, you know, and, and understand the struggles that we face, humanize each other rather than scapegoat each other. That's really the kind of work that needs to happen. And for that to happen, we need the public, uh, our, our public elected officials to take leadership and provide resources uh, for that work to happen, for the investments in our communities that we need to be safe. Um, and, you know, I totally just want to echo that while there is a greater tendency, I think, in the Asian community to, to there's a different relationship in the Asian immigrant community to police than say in the black community, but it is not all uh, a positive relationship. We have folks who have been 
caught up in the carceral state. We have folks who um, you know, are demanding for more police at every opportunity. We have the whole range of opinions and viewpoints. Um, I think that uh, in general, there is less of the racial profiling, of course, that we see in the black community than in the Asian community uh, related to police presence. But at the same time, I think there is a similar shared experience of finding um, police response pretty ineffective for the vast majority of issues and safe, safety related issues that people um, face. And so I think there is room in the community to engage the conversation of what real safety looks like, especially at this point of a pandemic, you know, with, um, with so much uh, people feeling so much fear and concern for their futures um, to really talk about what does true safety mean? It means when we have what we need. It means when we can ask for help in the language that we speak. And it means that we have relationships with each, with each other so we can hold each other up when the times get rough. Right, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm really, you know, as we close out, I'm, I'm really happy that we're having this conversation because this podcast, it's a, it's a foreign policy podcast, but the, the genesis of it all is safety and security. And it's about how do you make a safer world? How is the world more secure? And I decentered the conversation from militarism, right? And I devote a lot of my writing to nuclear weapons non-proliferation, right? You know, those tend to be more kind of globalized issues, but I think it's important to have these type of conversations because the people who, a lot of folks who listen to this, uh, they do work in state department. They do work in embassies across the world. And I always remind folks that the types of, you know, like this, we, we have these issues of white supremacy in our own country and you can't make a safer world if your own homeland is not secure. For you, Alicia, what are you optimistic about? One thing I feel optimistic about is that um, we're not new to this, we're true to this. And, you know, I would feel a lot more concerned if we didn't have relationships if we didn't have tools that we know work, and if we didn't have the fortitude to really understand the long game. You know, um, being in practice around solidarity means that you don't have to get ready because you've already been ready. <laughs> and so um, I really want to encourage folks to, um, to tap in. I want you to tap in with Chinese Progressive Association. I want you to tap in with organizations across the country that are in practice doing this work. You don't have to recreate the wheel, right? You can join efforts that are already in motion. And I also am feeling hopeful, right? And inspired about the fact that um, thus far, even with the missteps and the mistakes and all the things that are normal with these kinds of um, challenges, thus far, we are resisting the urge, right, to throw each other under the bus. And I know that, you know, in so many ways, right, we can focus on all of the places in which people aren't getting it right. But I'm hoping what people take from this conversation and the hope that I'm feeling is with all the places where people are getting it right. So that's where I'm feeling hopeful and inspired. Shazan, what about you? Yeah, I would say, um, there's no signs that the current administration is gonna let up on the anti-China stance and rhetoric that really continues to pit um, people of the US against the people of China, as, rather than focus the energy on the solutions that we just talked about that keep us safe, like the, re the resourcing investments we need in um, you know, our communities and around climate change and you know, for economic recovery for all of our people. Um, and I think that offers an opportunity for us as communities of color, as Asian and black communities and beyond, you know, to recognize that the many faces of white supremacy and racism, uh, at the end of the day, they're all coming after us. And together, we have been able to make uh, the advances that we see in our country. Every progressive advance we've seen in our country for workers' rights, for climate justice, uh, for uh, moving from a carceral state has come from the unity of communities of color standing together. Um, and I want to just encourage folks who are interested in staying plugged into the specific events that are happening around Asian American um, attacks and our attempts to build solidarity and find real safety. Uh, you can go to uh, bit.ly, so bit.ly slash loveourpeople, SF, 
Um, that's the name of our action, Love Our People, Heal Our Communities that we did last weekend. So uh, bit.ly slash love our people, SF as in San Francisco. And thanks so much for the opportunity, Terrell. Yeah, thank you. What makes me feel optimistic is the work that y'all are doing. And the work that y'all are doing empowers me. And I'm not an organizer by training, but I feel like I have movement in my heart and in my spirit and in my politic. And the work that I do at the root, the work that I do in foreign affairs is all inspired by the both by both of you. And when I saw these attacks taking place online, the first thing I thought about was, let's, let me go to my movement people and see what conversations that we can have and to see, and most importantly, um, being able to have these conversations with folks who will help me uh, to learn more about this as I interview you both and so that everyone else can learn. I feel like the movement has given me responsibility and accountability to to uh to really bring us together and because i know better as a media person i am empowered and required to do better and i feel really i real i feel really hopeful i feel really uh energized you know terrell can i just can i just say one thing to respond to what you just said about you're not an organizer you're you know you're a journalist organizing is a way of life and it's an orientation to how we want to build power and build movements and make change happen for our people so it doesn't matter what your career is, you know, you're, you're, it sounds to me like you're an organizer. And we, uh, on the, those of us who are doing grassroots community organizing on the ground with, you know, it, we hella appreciate love and need every one of you who's out there in all the other fields to keep doing that. Be organizers, you know, doctors are organizers, you know, uh, teachers are organizers. We have, we need all of y'all organizing in every field, every sector to lift up and move the point that we need to build power in our communities to make this change happen. Well, thank you. So thank you for being part of the organizing crew. Well, thank you. You know, I, that, I feel good. I, I, that, that makes me, uh, I, I feel really great about that because I, I care about these things. And so, yeah, I mean that, that, you know, I feel optimistic because you jotted some joy into my life and some, <laughs> some good words into my spirit. So thank y'all. I mean, we, we all, did a show alicia and shasan i mean two powerful organizers that i have the honor of, of bringing into one space we did a show and i'm, I'm grateful for y'all so thank you for joining thank you so much thank you for having us thanks a lot for listening Please support the podcast by going on your favorite platforms, including Spotify and iTunes, and giving us a five-star rating. And go on to Patreon, search for Black Diplomats Podcast, and donate what you can. Talk to you next week. <laughs>